Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Mendy Yuri. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Kate Delaney. Kate began working as a futurist in the 1990s while employed by the Canadian government, Foreign Affairs, then Defence. She trained at Global Business Network in San Francisco. She is also an ardent reader of the craft. Kate was invited by the Australian government to work in defence on loan from Canada in the late 1990s and set up a defence foresight network and internal quarterly reporting, tracking future developments that might affect the department's ability to deliver its capabilities over time. Eventually, she moved back to Australia and the lovely sense of humour. She helped a few government agencies rekindle foresight work in Australia and New Zealand in the early 2000s and has worked with mainly government and not-for-profit organisations since returning to Australia. On balance, Kate has done more horizon scanning than scenario planning or systems thinking projects to influence senior decision makers. And she has completed a number of projects using strategic foresight tools that haven't been categorised as foresight as such. Andy Hines once called this Futures by Stealth. Kate says she thinks the nicest thing that has happened is she has inspired others to become futurists and even attend Swinburne's master's course when it ran. Welcome to Future Pod, Kate. Thank you so much for inviting me. Kate, we're catching up with you in Melbourne today. Thank you for making the trip down from Canberra. Can you start with telling us about your story? How did you first become attracted to futures? I think I'm sure you've heard the expression, I'm another accidental futurist. So I was doing work for the Canadian government in the Defence Department, and we were looking at uh, the Berlin Wall had just fallen. Um, and the aftermath of the Berlin Wall and the peace dividend. So we did some really fascinating work, like negotiating the first memoranda of understanding of cooperation with Russia, and um, they were downsizing defense. And, and we started wanting to think, well, this was pretty unusual. And um, somebody, and I don't really know who it was, but somebody had talked about foresight as maybe a tool or a suite of tools that we could use in defense. And so I sort of read a bit about it, Peter Schwartz's book, um, the famous Peter Schwartz's. And there weren't many university programs on defense was not at that time willing to pay for university programs. But they did send me down to Global Business Network. And that's how I got my first exposure to futures. And um, there were some really lovely instructors on that particular program, and a, a gentleman named Craig Perry from the CIA was a colleague, and I almost fell over when I found out at that time they had 30 futurists. And so I thought, oh, maybe I better do a bit of reading, and 
I'm a bit of a nerd and that I like research and things and I found out a few of the names of the journals and looked into it and started talking to people that were actually doing the work based on the colleagues and futurists-to-be that I met at Global Business Network. So I did uh, kind of two two two-week courses and that was my formal training. And then I started practicing it within the confines of the Defense Department. It was not a full-time job then, so it was interesting because one of the things it did give me permission to do was to think about things that had been previously impossible. And so I worked with the Australian government um, to do a counter-trade deal between the Netherlands, Australia, and Canada on defense equipment, and that had never been done, and all of the governments said, oh, we don't support counter-trade, it's kind of, but we got it through, so it, it was that permission to really expand your horizon of what's actually doable and possible, and, and we did things that, given the context, were even unusual, you know, even though the Berlin Wall had fallen and were in a peace dividend. And that eventually led to the Australian Defence Department requesting that I be loaned to the Australian government in their strategy area of defence for about three years. So I was posted as a Canadian public servant from 94 to 97 in the Defence Department here in Australia and did things like set up the quarterly strategic review, which was based on taking into account the long term and some of the sort of dynamics of change around it. There was a lot of linkage back to risk and more standard strategy projects as well. But I also set up at a time something called the Defense Futures Forum, which was just trying to get young people in defense at a certain level, not entry level, but kind of between senior management and entry level interested. And I had the good fortune of um, having a deputy secretary I was working for named Hugh White, who eventually moved on to become a professor at ANU in the Defense Strategic Studies Center. But I think certain types of long-term thinking and certain ways of thinking are clearly embedded in defense anyways. And so what we had to do was to expand people's thinking a bit. It's sort of like laying a brick wall, one brick at a time. But it but it worked. Um, and then I was posted back. I, the Canadian government said, come home. Most of my service was in the revenue department and customs and foreign affairs. And um, I had just been sort of moved to defense when they sent me to Australia. So I I went back to defense. And uh, as is a habit in the Canadian government, if you've got a good posting, good in quotes, then they give you a job that's not too desirable um, when when you go back. So it was kind of an okay job, but it was really interdepartmental negotiations on defense procurement. And I didn't really want to do that, so I kept in contact with one of the um, senior people in defense, and he said, oh, we'll give you a contract if you come back so many days per month for five years. 
to do the same sort of thing as you were doing because I I did things like uh, the rise of certain types of terrorism and things like that and we we looked at certain issues that defense wasn't at all clear about um in that sort of area so i went to my boss in canada and said i'm moving back to australia and he said oh well go for a year and then come back and i'll rehire you because <laughs> that was okay. the rule and that's sort of how i got into the futures full time so when i came here i started with that base of the defense contract with a few days per month. And then I started offering training and um, doing a few little projects here and there in the late nineties when I'd come back and I set up a company and did that for about 20 years and I'm getting older now. So I'm working with a friend in his company now, mostly because I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go and it was just easier to um to think about did I want to keep on running a company with no employees because it was a one-person company so yeah So, Kate, were you using specific foresight tools during that time? It sounds like you were working with a group of people for whom foresight was uh, a necessary perspective, I suppose, in in defence. They needed to have a long-term view of what they were doing. I think the interesting thing about defence and the other agencies that I expanded out to the interesting thing about them is is you always have to start most new things with a tool that they can look at and figure that it has a process. So you have to have sufficient process to engage people in something so they can see there's sort of a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, scenario planning or horizon scanning or systems thinking all have that sort of one, two, three step. And you're quite able to move away from the methodology at different points of each process. But it's interesting that people want to know what they're going to do and what they're paying for. So that sort of process orientation is really important. And as long as you can say to the process is this and the purpose is this. So I always used to hinge on the fact that they wanted to make better decisions. Um, And so there's sort of, can I create more of the future that I want reason? And can I make better decisions today? And so you can weave that sort of story into pretty well the standard systems thinking, horizon scanning and scenario planning approaches that you use. And I think that what's really interesting about being a practitioner is you kind of are more of a bower bird. You collect a little bit from change management and you collect a little bit from design thinking and a little bit nowadays from innovation and you start showing people the overlap. So if their interest, for example, now innovation's a bit of a word in the federal government or the Commonwealth government here. 
And so you can show them that the skill set is the same as a foresight practitioner. And, um, you know, the curiosity you need, the ability to tell stories, uh, the ability to connect the dots, those type of things that you draw out of the discipline of, I guess, the practitioner's art of being a futurist. I think what's really interesting is you have to have an ability to communicate very clearly without using academic expressions in certain departments. So I've worked with some of the more basic um, expressions and, and use, like if I say horizon scanning, I'll say, well, that's about spotting change early. If I talk about scenario planning, I talk about painting a picture of alternative or optional worlds. And so you don't use any of the words that you see like Riel Miller, who's very, very clever, and I'm not putting him down at all, but, but he uses more of an academic language to communicate some of the intent of some of the foresight projects you use. So it's an interesting learning experience. When, when I started as a futurist, I think I used a lot more jargon than I do now. And it's a really hard lesson to learn People don't get what you're saying if you're not communicating clearly. And the other thing that I find interesting is I use things like Nancy Duarte's work on how to communicate well. And so what I find fascinating about foresight is that it forces you to improve and learn, um, you, you know, improve your own skill set and learn as you're going. The other thing I think that's interesting is you have to have a clear destination or outcome that a client wants. And because the history of, for example, scenario planning or the Futures Commission here in Australia and things, whether it's deserved or not, sometimes there's a choppy history. We did this with this person and we didn't like it and thought it was a waste of money. So you have to sort of get to the insight quickly enough that they can go, uh-oh, or aha, very quickly. So it's kind of a balance between going from breadth to depth and back again. So the tools that you use, am I actually constructing the scenarios or am I looking at the trends and drivers? And what am I doing? So it's kind of a mixture. I find that interesting. You become kind of a designer of a, a thinking process. Right. And that becomes the fascinating thing. Um, can you give some examples of things that have really worked well or things uh, or places that have been particularly difficult? Um, I think Three Horizons Thinking is probably mm-hmm. one of the classic mm-hmm. ones where people get it. And there's some very sophisticated interpretations of it nowadays when it first came out and it was Madrad Bagai in Sydney it was about capability development and so when you look at the history of it and how we've brought it into the fold in in futures thinking and some of the early work of Andrew Curry for example so I found that that's a particularly effective way and what you have to do is explain why you want them to think about the short term and the long term and then the medium term. And one of the things that people get 
is if you can give other countries that have done it that way. So the Netherlands, uh, a couple of unis in the Netherlands developed a process called transition management. And it has a lot of overlap that goes well with departments like the tax office or defense or agriculture, sort of primary industries. So what I find is that you have to be very clever about conveying it in the language that they're speaking. And you can find some really different examples. So the other thing that I find interesting is sort of a systems thinking, but but not a false systems thinking process. So this idea of transition management is relates to three horizons and the sequence or the way you run the process, short term, long term, then medium term. Um, and that gets them to think more in a futuring foresight kind of way. The second one that I find interesting is if you do systems thinking, but not in an incredibly elaborate way. There's a couple of people who do really, really good jobs on systems thinking in Australia. But I find that if you're not an expert, it's useful to talk about connecting the dots and how would you loosely do it. And so I'll use things like some of the Medium articles, Layla, Acarglu, and people like that from Medium as a great website where she's explained, here's emergence, here's whatever. Um, so I find it useful to use it to a degree to push them into the aha or the uh-oh. And you don't have to go full bore. And I guess a, a really interesting difference that I've had discussions over the years with people like Hardin Tibbs is how how much do you let them move a bit versus go for the whole hog? And what's your approach? And I find that because I'm making a living out of it without any kind of secondary job or academic job, I find that you have to you build it one brick at a time. And I often get repeat customers, which is really interesting because you take them a bit and then you take them a bit more and then you take them a bit more. And um, for example, I'm working in Melbourne next week and that agency worked with me in 2008 and I got them so far. And then out of the blue, they phoned me um, last year in September and said, we want to work with you again. So they were, you know, they had a lot of churn and st government changes and priority changes in government. But they were willing to say, okay, now we can engage in this. We understand what you did for us before. Let's take it a step further. That's probably um, an extreme example of a, a dead period between people. Yes, it's a long time. Are you saying, Kate, that you've had more success in rather than taking people a long way out and then working out how to get there step by step, you would prefer to take them step by step from the start? Um, no, I don't think sequentially. I mean, we usually have some sort of long-term vision or long-term description yeah. of the external environment or the context in which they'll be working. 
but I can only take them so far in each engagement. Sure. Um, and we always do how last, how, what's that transition last. Okay. And so you have a description. They're very capable of saying this is what, if we make this decision, this is what's going to happen in the short term, up to five years. Um, and we know that in 50 years, it might be so foreign, it might be like this. But you have to get them into discussing where they're going to spend their money, what kind of investment structures they're going to do, how they're going to cha- train their staff in different ways, and very pragmatic things. And that's where you can only take them. Yes. Uh, you know, it's hard for people to conceive of the difference in that transition period. Yes. Um, it's very easy for people to describe a far future yes. or the immediate future. And it's that medium term where you're you're talking about the transition that so I try to do that step by step or a little bit at a time. I think most of the tools I use are a standard kind of variation on scenario planning. I use cross impact analysis, some of the kind of I'd say roughly French approaches <laughs> as well, and I've used that more for science agencies. So I have Agents, uh, agencies that have a scientific background and you do more elaborate scenarios. You don't do a two by two matrix, you do a cube. Um, so they want more stories about the future and they want more complexity. And it's the same with using, instead of using kind of a, just a nodes and simple systems diagram like you, I don't know if you've heard of the tech, um, the website Scapel or Loopy. No, I anyway, if I can do it, anybody can do it. It's we how to do system diagrams really easily. Um, so, so I use those all the time. I threw it into the Association of Professional Futurists, and it was funny how many people, when I threw Loopy in, and it's, if you have a touch screen, you can bang the two factors together, and it will draw the line for you. It's really easy. So I think the interesting thing is if you use some of the French ideas and adapt them. So it's I start with understanding what's really done, and then you massage them. But I think one of the things I find about foresight is there's a lot of people who don't bother reading the journals. They don't bother learning the proper techniques or the way, the real way it's done. So when they try to make up their own tools or adapt or kind of move around, they don't quite know what they're doing because they don't have a firm starting point. So I'm very firm about a couple of things. One is you should know that you master your methodologies you use. And by that, I mean, know the right way to use them, look at the academic writing, all of the journals and things, talk with people about how to, before you move away from them. And I think the other thing is that you should use the best evidence available. And so a lot of the early journal articles that are still speculative wires climate change and things like that, Wiley Interactive Research Services. So you should follow, if you're going to talk about climate change with somebody, you should look at how climate scientists are speculating what's uncertain for them. So you should have a good evidence base as well. So the content and the context evidence base, but you should also master your tools. And I guess I know a few tools well. I don't think I do everything well, like many people. And and I would make one more point. There's a couple of people in New Zealand I've worked with for a number of years, and 
if you're working for people who don't have money, I would rather that you didn't do scenarios and things like that. If you're trying to do it in one day, a complete scenario project, it's very difficult to do. So I worked with Queensland Fire and Emergency Services, and they internally did a lot of work, excellent, excellent work, led by a young woman there who was in the strategy area. And then I was talking to somebody in Fire and Emergency Services in New Zealand, and that took a year for them to do the end point of their scanning and their futures work, and they know it's it's not good because they, they have to practice makes perfect. I, I always say you get better at scanning the more you do it for your agency. But then somebody from New Zealand in that sort of emergency management area phoned them up and said, we want to do scenarios in a day and a half. So yeah, um, I think you have to look at and choose your tools also according to the budget of the people who are doing it and their true interest in whether they really want to challenge assumptions or improve their current decisions, create the future they want. So I went back when I was first learning how to do scenarios and read a lot of Herman Kahn's work because I was that was kind of a defensey kind of thing, and Rand was, you know, you should read Herman Kahn's book about Australian futures. It's a okay. really, really good book. Yes. And were you working with somebody else when you were learning that, Kate? I sort of got theory. adopted by a few people like the CIA gentleman that I knew. So, yes. you know, I had people to talk to. Yes. But there weren't academics that I was aware of in Canada mm. when I was doing some of this early work. And I met, very fortunate to meet people like Oliver Freeman and Harden Tips and Mm. I could phone them up. Mm. They were very, very welcoming. And I think one of the interesting things I try to do as well is if I come across a young futurist, I think it's my responsibility to pass on a legacy. And I was looking at my library the other day and I said, oh, I don't really need, I have books that are pretty old and, and foresight unwritten about Australian foresight. And I was thinking, gosh, when I come here, I should talk to somebody about maybe we should try to have some kind of library system for those old things. And many of them aren't on the internet, or they're not accessible, or they're not in print anymore. So you you think about things like that. But I guess just to finish the tools roundup, variations on horizon scanning. I've looked at what Andy Hines has done. I've looked at what the Europeans do. But we don't have the money, and we don't spend the money in Australia, so you have to have different business models. So I run a scanning group that's 20 government departments, and they each pay a small fee to have a joint database in three meetings a year. Right. Um, wow. So I, I, it was kind of a membership to get the, the amount of money that they would give to one department in, in Europe or the UK, the old DEFRA type of investment. You have to have different business models in Australia and New Zealand. People just won't give you several million dollars like you might get in Europe or the UK or in in the US. And, you, you know, you look at people like Clem Bezold, who has done a lot of really good early work and, and more laterally in the US and the type of fees they can command. We know we can't 
so there's got to be a different type of business model. Kate, the next question we like to ask our guests is a more personal question. What are you seeing in the future? What, what are you seeing unfolding? You can go out 30 years if you like, or choose your own adventure, however far out you'd like to go. What are you seeing? Uh, that's a really interesting question, and I, I don't know if I have an accurate or a concise answer. Because I think about a lot of stuff, and I think inequality and the way we treat people. I'm a big proponent of something like, I'm not sure if it's a, quite the right answer, but universal basic income. I'm a big proponent of taking care of people who aren't always valued in society. And I would like to think some combination of universal basic income or universal basic services. You know, as we get a population that ages and fewer people in the workplace and maybe a throw in a bit of automation for replacing sort of that aging aspect of getting basic work done, I think we have to be very careful about how we treat people and not lose the humanity that we have. So I think in in a social sense, I'd like to see some sort of revamp of the social welfare system. And I, I think it will be, I'm just not sure which way it will go. And my heart says, oh, please go the way I think is good. Um, my sort of norms and values, which is some combination of universal basic service or basic income or something similar. But I could see else also traveling down other roads. So I'm concerned about that. I think being a Canadian at heart, part of our culture is distinguishing ourselves from Americans. But I have a lot of friends who I, I relate to through Twitter. And I'm quite concerned about the future of America. And I guess that depends in the short term on who replaces Trump or if Trump gets reelected or if somebody of a similar vein. Some of the ways we govern ourselves as democracies and the way um, democratic rights are shifting, I'm not quite sure where that will end up. And we see it in Australia as well. We see certain liberties and certain participation or engagement of citizens is just so challenging now and how we get over those challenges of truly engaging people in the way that they want to be governed without that undercurrent of a large percent of the population being unhappy about it. So that's an interesting thing. I'm not sure how we practice democracy in Australia, which is not quite a Westminster system, but sort of how we practice democracy and, and particularly public engagement, how that will play out. I found it interesting how many people didn't vote this last time and how many people voted early. And I don't know what that was an indication of. I just haven't unpacked it. 
I think the the other thing that I find interesting is there's sort of a an undercurrent of a story about corruption in politics and what's going to happen with that and why can't we have transparent government. There was a book, and I can't remember who wrote it, but it's about 35 years old, and it was Privacy is Dead. And they were talking about government, and I thought, why don't we know what's happening on some of the water buybacks or the water leases on the Murray Darling? Why don't we know about some of the kind of contracts that that we're putting out? Why are we saying to journalists, and maybe journalism will change. It is changing because we're getting a lot of non-paid-for journalists, you know, citizen journalists. Um, So that's another interesting thing is where our information comes from and how it's filtered and how reliable that filter is. Like right now, when I read something, I have fears sometimes that if it's not in a peer-reviewed journal and they have problems as well, how accurate is it? And I guess that combination of taking care of the people who need our support and bringing them along, that inequality gap and the way we govern or practice democracy. And maybe I just read social media too much, but the the sort of greed or corruption of a lot of officials in both government and the private sector. You know, why are we having so many royal commissions? There's, There's an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with civil society of dissatisfaction with the political realm and probably we're not sure what's accurate so we have some journalism you know i've lived through times where things weren't so good and i've lived through times where there was hope so if you think about the vietnam war although i was canadian and we certainly never fought in the vietnam war that most of my professors in my first degree were American draft dodgers. So you can see where their bias and their opinions and our view, we paid attention to the Vietnam War. And I don't think that was the most shining moment. And then you had the Berlin Wall fall. And I think it was surprising, at least in some circles, and it was amazing. And then climate change, you know, nowadays is probably, when are we going to actually do something? and do something that's effective. And I guess that's the other thing is I do a lot of environmental work and when will we see this shift in how environmental activism, how wherever it's going to end up, how it will play out. Those are kind of my big concerns. Mm. But I always want to make the point that it's not hopeless, that, that mm. we've been in, and maybe it seems darker to other people, but how can you live without a hope of creating a better future? You can't. Kate, we're interested to ask our guests this question. It's a frequently asked question, I think. What is futures? What is foresight? What's the practice of futures and foresight? So I thought about this question because Mm -hmm. there's thousands of ways you could answer it. But Mm. my simple answer probably is 
foresight is thinking about the future that you can create to make the world a better place. And it's thinking about the present and how you make decisions that don't close off growing into a better future. How do you improve the type of decisions you make today to ensure that you have as broad a chance of achieving a better future? There's a lot of nuances to that expression, but I think if you keep in mind, it's about where possible creating what you want more of and making better decisions today. Mm. And I know something you spoke about a little bit earlier was a sensitivity, the need for a sensitivity about who you're speaking to, who are those people and their their values and their future will be perhaps different to Certainly, else. and I and I think one thing we don't do really well, and there's some young people like some of the work the Red Cross, Red Crescent Society is doing right now about decolonizing the future and and not imposing our type of view on on the future, and that gets back to the universality of or the engagement side of of foresight processes. I'm always a great believer in diversity of input and output. One difficult question I get asked is, how can you put yourself in somebody else's shoes? And I say, well, maybe you should just invite them in the tent rather than putting yourself in their shoes. And we don't do that quite enough. Uh, and and maybe Melbourne's different than Canberra, but Canberra's quite a... Um, I joke about the Canberra bubble because there is no bubble, but there is a sameness and, and not a lot of cultural diversity that we see visibly in Canberra. Whereas when you come to Melbourne, you see the the um, cultural vitality, probably more so than any other Australian city. Like when you go to Perth or Brisbane, there you don't see it. It's hidden. Right. But I'm still not sure whether there's a great diversity inside the tent, Kate. <laughs> there might not be, but... But, you know, every good strategist, every good innovator, every good futurist talks about the diversity issue and how to bring in more voices and how to respect their, their voices and not try, try to change or warp their opinions. And that's incredibly hard to do. So that's probably one of the hardest things we do as futurists. Kate, I think you've been one of the first women to make a living from your work in Futures and Foresight, which is quite an achievement. I wonder if you could comment a little bit about that and about the changing environment that your work life has transcended, both in terms of your work colleagues who's working in the future space, but also who's listening to Futures as well, who's interested in participating. That's an interesting question because I came from sort of traditionally male-dominated intelligence and defense and security kind of roles where there were very few women. And over time, two things happened. Because I work mainly with not-for-profit or civil society and with government departments, I don't work with business that much, so I won't speak to that. 
but what I find is that the advancement of women has really leaped ahead. And certainly in the public sector, in the Commonwealth public sector. So the shift has been from being one of the few women, if not the only woman in the room, to one of many women. And I personally find it interesting that there's a lot less need to explain where you're going when you're working with women than with men. So there's a lot less need to justify exploring how to think, exploring your biases, exploring the assumptions you have, or the views about possibility and expanding it as the gender balance has shifted over time. And I think the other thing is that, and maybe it's just in Australia, because I'll reflect on the last couple of decades in Australia and a bit in New Zealand, but the number of senior women that we we are exposed to and the number of women that are educated is shifting in society. And I don't know if it would have been, and I can't assume it wouldn't have been the same, but the people that I encounter at certain levels of work that would want to talk about things like this and say, I've got to make decisions even though I have incomplete information, even though there's ambiguity or uncertainty, the people that are interested in pursuing that type of how do I make better decisions in light of ambiguity or uncertainty or incomplete information because of research, for example. I think that the level of education of women has risen quite rapidly in Australia, certainly, and inclusion at certain feeder levels to senior executives. And so I just find I have to explain less and I attribute it, and that might be a bias on my part, but I attribute it to explaining something to a woman versus explaining something to a man. And that's based on my career. It's whenever I've had to explain a concept or an idea, you know, how you do your explore, your explain, your influence, sort of your three steps of any broad foresight project. When you think about those phases, I've had to explain a lot more when I've had audiences that are typically um, more men involved in the audience. But I'm, I'm, there's no scientific basis. It's my personal experience. And I think that we're seeing a shift in a generational shift as well. And I'm working with some really interesting uh, young people. For example, I've been doing some e-learning projects where we include modules on horizon scanning or scenario planning or whatever for different government departments. And I work with a young guy in his 30s, and he's very much fits in the mold of the women I was just saying. So it might just be my little brain going what I was treated like in a heavily male-dominated to what I'm treated like now. And it just happens to be more women because of the way the Australian system has changed. I think the other thing that's interesting is when I first moved to Australia, there were fewer women business owners. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that's changing Mm -hmm. quite rapidly. And Mm -hmm. you look at some of the smart young women and men coming up as futurists and the tools and the way they use technology. It's just 
amazing. And I guess a lot of what we did was pen and ink and structuring conversation. And I'm not sure that we gave them the experiential ideas of feeling, actually feeling it. I went to a couple of really early, you know, 20 years ago, experiential futurists happening, but we never quite got it. So a lot of the way I grew up in, you know, 30, 20 years ago was structuring the conversation to gain insight. And who you invited into the room was very important. And quite often because of the requirements of different government departments, they wouldn't even invite women in the room or they wouldn't invite somebody from a different cultural or an ethnic background or somebody who spoke a different language. Mm. And that I'm very hopeful about that because I think we look at what we have in terms of capacity to involve people. They don't have to be in the room. They don't have to speak the same language, but we can still involve them. Kate, it's been wonderful having you here, sharing a lot of your experience and your work in Futures with the Futures and Foresight community. Thank you very much for making the time. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I hope you keep on doing this for the next 10 years. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Mendy Yuri saying goodbye for now. <laughs>